Hello, I'm Karen Hardwick. And in addition to being a clinically and spiritually trained therapist, I am a leadership consultant. As a result of my work and my own messy and beautiful journey, I know that connection is the antidote. On this podcast, I talk with people, leaders from all walks of life, who embody connection to self, to amazing grace, and as a result, to others. My guests are those who bravely choose true connection, even as they walk through some hard times. They hold their stories and the stories of others lightly and lovingly with authenticity and grace, empathy and gratitude. They are the ones awakening, broken wide open into wholeness. We are all recovering from something and the sharing of our stories is all about connection not perfection. I have a chair here just for you. We are saving you a seat. Don't miss this episode of Saving You a Seat. As I talk to Stacey Robbins, you are not going to want to miss her tips on what it means to raise resilient children and also how to rise up, to be still, and to connect really deeply with oneself in real and raw and redeeming ways. Everyone, you are in for such a treat this morning. I am with Stacy Robbins, who I have been following and reading for so many years. She is the author of the award-winning book, You're Not Crazy and You're Not Alone, and her other book, An Unconventional Life, Where Messes and Magic Collide. Don't you just love that title? I do. Stacy coaches women all over the world with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition, and she helps them to live the power that they have within themselves as they rise to whom they are here to be. And in addition to her books and coaching, Stacy leads gorgeous gluten-free Italian retreats. She and her husband, Rock, have two adult sons, and they live their messy and magical lives in Southern California and travel the world together. Stacy, I am so excited to have you here on Saving You a Seat. I'm so glad to be here with you, Karen. Thank you for having me. And oh my gosh, you said adult sons, and I think I got my stomach dropped. I was like, no, they were babies yesterday. (laughs) No, I know. I say to my 20-year-old all the time, like, do you want to put your feety pajamas on and I'll read you a story? And he looks at me like, with horror, like, you've lost your mind. I know. I'm Italian. We kiss a lot and we squeeze coolies, you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't think their wives are going to like that one day. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. You know, I have been, as I said in my introduction, following you and reading you and you have such a gracious way about you. So I'm so happy to have you around the table and talking today. But this graciousness does not come without walking through some pretty hard seasons. So I want to ask you, start by asking you, tell me about the importance of rest and stillness for you and how that's so important for women today, for everyone today. 
Rest is my four-letter word, is what I call it. It's one of the hardest things for me to do because it requires me to be present with me. But I got a very strong calling. Well, first, let me go back because when I was a child, I was really good at being alone with myself. I would just walk around and be alone for hours and sing songs to myself, be in nature. And, you know, it wasn't the time of cell phones and it wasn't the time of, you know, people being able to easily find you and always being connected to the World Wide Web. You know, it would be where I'd leave the house for hours and then I'd be like, oh, let me stop in this stranger's house, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm Stacy so-and-so. Could you please give my mom a call and let her know where I am and that I'm okay? <laughs> you know, so there was an okay with my presence to self. So in that, I think, was an experience of rest. But I think as I progressed through life and I took on some experiences that were traumatic, I took on experiences that were energizing, I think that I got really restless. And when I was in my early 30s, my family and I, my husband, Rock, and my two boys, who were one and three at the time, we got a job opportunity in upstate New York. We were living in Southern California, and I was returning to my northeastern roots. I was really excited. And we piled the kids in the van, and we took off on this cross-country adventure to move for this two-year assignment. As we were driving cross-country, we were just, it was a mess. You know, I thought we were going to have all this peacefulness and eating um, at healthy places and going to state parks and being in nature. And then we were going to go um, land at our experience in upstate New York and just have this new peace and get away from kind of the craziness of Southern California. And, you know, instead we ate at McDonald's the whole way. We, we you know, got lost for hours at a time. We were in every weather system imaginable from like rain to hail to sleet to snow. I mean, it was crazy. Um, the parenting CDs that we bought so we'd be better parents, we had never even took the cellophane off, the, <laughs> off of them. Like the kids ate the non-toxic tips off the washable markers and then they painted on each other. I mean, I, I just can't even tell you how crazy it was. And our five-day road trip, by day nine, I think, we landed in Pennsylvania. And as we were there, we had just all hit the end of our rope. And um, we ended up having this lost experience around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and then finally landing in a place where at the hotel lobby bar, where we were staying, hotel lobby breakfast bar, I ended up running into this woman who was from my life in California. And here she was standing right near me in a, in a hotel lobby breakfast bar. And um, in the shock of seeing somebody who you're connected to, but in a foreign, like an unexpected place, my listening was honed. And we ended up saying, well, what do we do right now? And we ended up um, going to a church service and because she wanted to. She was in town for a conference. And she's like, let's go to church. And I was like, I'm not really excited about that at this moment. But OK, I've been sitting in a car. I don't really want to sit in a church. But I didn't want to miss the good thing that I thought was coming. And the message that came that day was all about rest. And I was like, oh, rest. I came to, we had this great encounter with this woman from another place and in this unexpected situation. And the message I'm getting is to rest. 
that's kind of anticlimactic, like wah, 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 you know. But the truth was that I'd been hearing that message for a while. And it showed up in different forms. It would show up in like surrender, Stacey, release control. It would show up in forgiveness messages. It would show up in all these ways, but it had a specific theme of rest. And um, the truth is that I wasn't very good at that at that time. And so we arrived in upstate New York and I kind of avoided it, but I kept getting more and more messages about rest. So I eventually took on a 15 minute practice of stillness a day. And that was in 2005. And I will say this, that the, the rest that I did in a physical form, as I sat down, stuff came up, Karen, you know, it was like, the, the restlessness inside of me, the trustlessness inside of me, the um, control issues, fear, judgment, all of those things, the more I sat down in stillness, the more rose to the surface for me to examine. And you know, when you see things about yourself that you don't want to see or you're not comfortable with it, or you have some shame about, it would be really easy to run. But I found that the remedy for the restlessness was more rest. And being able to sit with myself in the grace of me being with me and letting myself love me in the presence of what was not so lovely. And so that, I know that's a big answer to your really deep question, but it really has been such a deep and profound journey. And so what is it for other women? I think that rest is something we think about as sleep at night, but really it's about peace during the day and being able to be with ourselves in the undoneness and, and loving ourselves in the unfinished places is really fostered through rest and trust. I'm kind of done after that. Like, <laughs> I, I just want to hit stop record because seriously, oh, there is so much in that. I have this practice I call chasing slow. I was going to refer to it because I so related to it. But talk, talk about that because it was so profound when I read it in your wonderful book. You know, we live in a world that encourages us to hustle for approval, right? Hustling for approval, keeping it all going. And then we're running from whatever we're running from. You know, all that stuff inside of us that we think is messy and broken and painful and I've come to see that that's really where our richness and our healing and grace is found. But it's not easy. And there's this philosopher, and maybe you've heard of him as Pascal, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this because I'm not going to get every word right, but close enough. He says, all human misery flows from the fact that we're unable to sit in a room by ourselves. That's Blaise Pascal. Yeah, that every man's suffering results from a man's inability to be alone with himself. It is so true. And I, yeah, that that actually was originally going to be the quote in the beginning of my, my new book that's coming out because it was such a profound quote for me and, um, and a profound truth. So yeah, I, I think I have found my way back to this sense of renewal and restoration as a result of this practice I call chasing slow, which for me has quieted me down enough to really hear my heart healing and my soul sighing and my life changing, that all of the profound change that I have had the courage to put into motion 
has really come from my silences and my solitude. And it takes me about an hour and a half to two hours every morning, Stacy, because I am a full-time job for the heavenly hosts. Like, I am a full-time <laughs> job <laughs> to just quiet me down. If I weren't starting the day with this practice of journaling and meditation and mindfulness and reading my recovery literature and my Bible and all the things that make sense for me, everyone has to find their own way with that, my days would not go as authentically as they go in this season of my life. Karen, that's really powerful. And I can hear, you know, it's so funny when people speak in a slower pace it's a sign of them being in their parasympathetic. So when we are in our fight or flight, our, our voice is raised to a higher pitch, and then we are in a, we just speak very differently and more quickly. And it's funny, like as I sit in my stillness practice, and again, like my practice is a longer practice. I wake up, I do my stillness time first, because I know I'll wriggle out of it. I will want to, because that call to accomplishment, to the doing over the being is still a strong pull, you know, and sometimes I have to, I have to eat the frog first. I have to do the hardest thing first for me. And so my stillness practice, I'm like, Siri, set my phone for X amount of minutes, you know, and then I just lie there and I go, this is my stillness receiving time. You know, what's broken, you know, what needs to be fixed, you know, where it is and what needs to happen. And I'm just open to every benevolent source on my behalf doing that work for me right now, I receive. And then I just go into this stillness time. And um, it truly is a practice <laughs> because I'm still practicing. And then I go into my meditation or my journaling or and then my yoga, my walk by the beach and then my workout. You know, it's just like, and then to shower and do your makeup. I'm like, good Lord, it's three hours. <laughs> yeah, it's lunchtime. I wake up early. <laughs> I, know, I know. I'm like, I'm ready for a nap by the time everybody's rising. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's very important and I hear it in you. And I read it in the words of your book, The Connected Leader. It was just, I, I smiled so many times at the symbiotic relationship and the synergy and all those good words. So I read your latest manuscript. Thank you for sending it. It was a real gift. And I love being able to read things before the rest of the world sees them and takes it in. I read it yesterday, as I told you, on the plane, a long plane ride. And, um, Stacy, I can't wait for this to get out into the world. And I know on some level, it's hard to put it out into the world because there's so much vulnerability. And as I was talking to you before, I think you found that balance, though, hard to find between telling our stories and being discerning because there's a lot of realness and rawness and pain in your story. And yet in some ways you held that lightly while also having like this divine inspiration to put it out there, but not with every gory detail that would be Mm, that's not aligned to your purpose in telling the story, is it? No, no. It, yeah, and thanks for saying that. The book is called God Loves Me, I Think, Stories from Hell, Heaven, and the Other Side of Texas. Yeah, I just really, and it's the tale of of real life of, of from 2005 to 2007 when we took that journey cross country and really the carrot dangling was a job and then the... Um, 
the spiritual carrot that I couldn't see was really drawing me to me and into the stillness and the unraveling of my the, the faith that I had created on fears. And it was the unfolding of the faith that really was from freedom. So I tell people it's a book about going from stuck places to free, from anxious places to peace and from fear places to love. And that was my journey. And so in that, you know, when you want to help direct people or you want to tell the story of of the freedom part, that means that there has to be something about the stuck. And if you're going to tell about the the peaceful parts, you have to talk about what caused the anxieties. And if you want to talk about the the love part, you have to talk about what the fears were about. And so I had to hold that tension. And honestly, I wrote this manuscript mostly about 12 years ago. And it just, every time I went to revisit it, it's almost like I couldn't connect with it. I don't know what happened. I think that I was filtering myself through not loving myself eyes. And I even reached out to a friend of mine about three years ago and who knows shamans. And I said, would you have someone do a shamanic work on this? I think somebody might've put a curse or something on this. I can't connect with my book. And so she did. And like, after she did whatever was beautiful and freeing in the energy realm, I um, was able to access the book again. And I just picked it up again this year. And I said, this is it. This is the year. And um, in that, I had to write about the painful parts of the past so that it could illuminate the freedom places of the present. So, um, yeah, thanks for saying that it was held lightly because I really do believe in depth and light. And I think before before I did my stillness practice, I think that I, I garnered a lot of attention from the heaviness in my life. And I think there was victim mindset and there was, there was a reward to focusing on the gory stuff. It was really a journey to shift from that and to want more for people and want more for myself than just the hard story that gives me attention. I really wanted more freedom for people. And I had to go on a freedom journey for many years to get to that place because I think I was stuck in a heaviness and a victim mindset. And if I tell you all these horrible things that happened to me, you'll think I'm important. And I had to go on my own journey to realize that that's not what defines me. It's part of my experience, and I know how to utilize it because I'm incredibly resourceful and resilient. Um, and I'm also wise to know where to apply the story and where to apply the principles. And that wasn't mm, that didn't happen overnight. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Does that yeah. make sense? <laughs> yeah, it makes complete sense. Telling our story is such an art. I'm in the recovery community, so we have a saying that we're only as sick as our secrets. And I think there's a tremendous freedom in telling our story and stepping out from the shadows and doing our part to break the stigma of whatever it is we carry, whether it be addiction or trauma or abuse or all those things. And yet, how do we do that in a way that focuses people on the hope without getting caught up in toxic positivity. I mean, it's such a balance between telling our stories and leaning into the redemption. And I think, to to your point, there's so many different seasons when we tell our stories. And there has to be the season when we're in the pain. And that's all we see. 
Because if we leapfrog over that, I think we're just looking at this toxic positivity instead of real deep healing. Yeah, I think that's really astute, what you just shared. Yeah, I tell my clients and, you know, I work with a lot of, I want to say leaders now and future leaders, like people who will be out there in the world and, and you know, mentoring them. And I, when they call me and there's a, a new pain after they've already had so much pain, it's like, wait, I thought the pain part was over. And I said, you don't get to, to tell a story you haven't lived. Live the story. Just live your story. And so one day you'll tell it. But, you know, sometimes we want to jump ahead and, and be in that projected place of we know it'll be easy. We know it'll be good. And so we try to, you know, walk on the water. Um, and then sometimes we just have to let ourselves drown and um, find our breath underwater. Like there's something magical that happens in the pain. But it's almost like a fever when you get sick with a flu, you know, I, I'm certified in health and and all that I do. And I remember 25 years ago learning about the importance of a fever. When you have a bacteria in you or a virus in you, your body will burn with a fever because that's the temperature at which it can destroy that bacteria or that virus. And so often the fever comes with discomfort, right? It comes with the aches in your bones and the fear that it's going to rise. And so the, the natural or maybe unnatural, I'm not sure, instinct is to, to grab that bottle of something that will lower the fever, right? And then when we do that, though, we arrest the process of the healing because we're trying to cut short the pain. Because when we're trying to mitigate pain, we mitigate healing. And so it's just like that sometimes with our life journey. To be in the grief is not comfortable. To be in the pain is is not what we want. And um, I get that. And yet the most joyful, peaceful people I know are those who have really learned to lean into their pain. Yeah. They're my heroes. I'm not that heroic. I really, you know, I if I could have a bottle of Advil at every turn... <laughs> of whatever life's maladies are, <laughs> I would grab for it. But yeah, I'd have too much conscience for that. And so I have to like, oh, I have to live in it. Well, and I think that's true for um, all of us who are struggling with addiction. And there's so many different kinds of addiction. It's not the drugs or the alcohol or the numbing, that's the actual problem. I mean, it gets to be a problem. It gets to be a really, really, really destructive problem. It's the pain we're trying to numb that's the problem. You know, in this manuscript that will soon be out into the world, you talk about this level of trauma and pain, and I'm, I am a huge fan of all the R words, like rest and renewal and restoration and redemption but you bring up two R words in the manuscript, Stacey, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. You tell about how you were raped, and you tell about the role that rage played in your family. And your resting and your redemption comes from a real, unbelievably traumatic walk through betrayal and pain. And I know your story is going to be so important for so many women, I really would love you to just touch on that 
because here you are on the other side, but are we ever really on the other side of it? And how do we use it? Yeah. And, you know, I originally didn't even add that story in of the rape because I didn't want it. It's like a, a ton of bricks as opposed to a ton of feathers. It's like, well, a ton is a ton, but if you have some the choice for someone to throw one at you, you'd rather have them throw the feathers. You know, it's like when you use that word, it's a very heavy word. And it's a very triggering word for people. And so, and I wasn't going to tell about the rage that existed in my family because I don't want the people in my family who I love to feel like I'm misrepresenting or... Um, telling their story, you know, like it's really touchy when you start bringing in things that are of deep pain or um, that affect other people. But I found myself going there because skirting around it wasn't going to allow people to know the contrast of darkness that then had the contrast of light, you know. So I, I went there and I think that when you live in an environment where there is like the mix of greatness like my family had and also the, the, the challenges, when you live in that environment and you learn to keep secrets, then when you have something that happens to you, like you're raped and that person says, and don't tell anyone or I'll hurt your sisters, your muscle of keeping secrets your muscle of not getting help when it's needed, your muscle of not being known by people who could do something or make a difference, all of that is just a very strong muscle. I had to put the manuscript down a few times on the plane and just sit with both how nauseous I felt and also how um, admiring I was of how beautifully you held it all and told the story, I mean, of true evil, this guy who raped you systematically and intentionally over time with such evil present. That's how I felt as I was reading it. And then that you have come out on the other side to hold this to the world in a way that's invitational. Like I can imagine women coming to you and saying, thank you for telling me. I want to talk about my experience now. Yeah, thank you for letting me know that. And, you know, I felt that way recently when I was reading Stephanie Fu's amazing book on complex PTSD. Um, her story is unbelievable in what my bones know. And it's a, it's a seminal work for our generation of women who have gone through abuse. And um, not just that, not to minimize, forgive me, but not one-off kind of abuse in their life, a, a, one circumstance, but that, that chronic, like death by a thousand cuts kind of abuse. And you and I are familiar with that, and so is Stephanie Fu. And I felt that way when I read her book. Because even though she handled it well, and in the audiobook you're hearing her voice, so you know she's okay, but to hear the hard things, I literally got nauseous. And I, I would listen to it while I was doing my yoga practice because I felt like that would be cathartic and healing. But uh, I had to just lay it down and go into child's pose many times and just go, 15 minutes is enough today. So I, I appreciate that. And because it does, it'll, it'll push the pause button for us to just go, I, I need a break. And that's the gift of a book, is you can just press pause, whereas life doesn't always allow you that. No, and as a 13-year-old, 
how do you get your break? You don't know where to go. And you're doing all that you can do to survive um, a hellacious experience um, that you have no idea when it's going on, that there will come a time when the world thanks you for telling your story. And I know what it's like to live in a complex family where we have to process the pain and the craziness and the, the all-out insanity and the really hard stuff. And yet we want to also hold it lovingly because there were so many wonderful moments that allowed us to be these women that we are today. And that calls us into, you know, this, this feeling that I have all the time of life is just complex and so are we human beings. It's complex, and I think that we get sold a bill of goods sometimes that there are going to be pretty messes, you know, and it's going to all wrap up in an hour like the television shows do, and there's going to be resolve, and, you know. So I think that what happens is when we watch other people, whether it's in the media or or the toxic positivity, you know, they become the pace cars of our own healing process. And if it's not a healthy pace car, then we don't have a healthy expectation of what healing will be like. And I think that we need to come into this idea of what is family? What is a marriage? What is relationship? What is, what is process? Because to look at the media, it tells you to expect one thing out of life. And then you get into real life and you're disappointed. It's like the pornography of life. You know, um, it's, like you're looking at a woman who's airbrushed and, you know, starving herself and whatever it is, you know, and she has no voice, no complaining. And then you come into a relationship with a woman and it's like, okay, something's sagging and there's some cellulite and she's got an opinion. And wait, this is different than my expectation. Yeah, well, you didn't pace yourself based on reality. And so therefore you don't have the endurance for a real life relationship. And I think that many of us in life with family, like you and I were just talking about, Karen, we expect family to be this one thing or another. And it's, I tell my children, I told them since they were little, live in the and, not in the but. Live in the and. It's this and that. I am wonderful and I am a crazy Italian mama. I am both things. So you don't ever have to tell yourself an untruth. You don't ever have to lie to yourself to make me just one or the other. I am an and. And so um, I feel like when we do that for our children, we free them to seeing the wholeness of who they are and who we are and what life is to say it is both the mess and the magic. I am both the person who is strong and in process. And um, when we do that, we allow them to be connected and reconciled to themselves and therefore to everything else. But many of us were not raised that way. We were, it was the, we want to seem this way at church or this way at the country club or this way in front of my boss or this way, you know. And so what happens is we have really strong muscles in pretending and we're constantly in this fight or flight assessing, like, is this one of those things where I can be my honest self? Or is this one of those things where I have to be um, protective? And um, and so I think that would put a lot of stress on probably our generation. And many of us had to walk through a healing process of saying, I'm a whole person and our family is going to be a whole imperfectly perfect family. And life is going to be that. And you're allowed to see the whole thing, to say the whole thing and to live in the joy and the process of it. Yeah, I love that whole concept of living in the end because it's all the end. 
It's all the and. And I do think that there are people in this world who, because they're stuck in their own shadow or they're not willing to do the work, and hopefully they will get to the point where they want to do the work, but they're not safe for us. They're not safe for us. And they might be seductive or they might want a piece of us or they might want to do some damage because of their own stuff. And I think we really have to be mindful of that. You know, every now and then still in my world, somebody comes in and luckily I'm learning this sooner rather than later, where their intentions are not going to be helpful for me. And it's not even that they're not helpful. Like, can we take it to the next level? They have a destructiveness. Yes. It's not like neutrality, right? There are people who are going to be beneficial. There are people who are going to be neutral. And then there are people who really can be destructive. I've experienced that. That's probably been the hardest thing for me to work through is that the person who said, that they love you, they'll always be there for you, and no matter where you are, they'll be right beside you, that that person or those people could end up wanting to destroy you. And I'm not even saying that lightly. And it's just kind of like, wow. And I please tell me if you think this sounds like toxic positivity, because I don't want to be in that, and I, I really want to be realistic. The truth is, for me, when we access that. What I raised my kids in is confidence. I know who I am. Humility. I know I have things to learn. Resilience. I get back up again when I fall. Resourcefulness. I use everything for my good. And wisdom. I I make my decisions from peace and not fear. Because I raised my kids with that as my intention, I then had to draw that in of myself, right? And so um, in that, we really had to access that within ourselves. And when you really know who you are, when that family member comes to you or that friend, quote unquote friend, comes to you or that spiritual community member comes to you and you thought they were a friend and they really are trying to be destructive, that falling into the place of I know who I am, I'm resilient, I'm resourceful, I'm powerful, it doesn't mean it's not painful what they do. It prepared me though for being ready to rise and speak my story and speak my voice and know that not everybody in the world would like me, but not only that, that there would be people who would try to be destructive, whether it's about my reputation or about my story or this or that or the way I said it. I just kind of use everything. I say, I have a saying, there are no scraps on God's floor. I mean, and because I remember taking a sewing class in eighth grade and there were scraps all over our floor. Like it was miserable. <laughs> and I was one of the worst. So I was the one who was always sewing something to my skirt. And I was like, and I'd stand up and the whole thing would fall apart. And um, I'd be attached to my sewing machine and not everything. And, and um, when I think of whatever God is, it's incredibly resourceful and knows how to use everything in my life for my good. And when I access that divine quality, I then can use even those destructive people in my life for my good. So does that sound toxic? No, it doesn't sound toxic positively at all. Honestly, Stacey, you know, there's been quite a number of destructive intentions in my life, in my son's life. And I said to him the other night, there's this line from the story of Joseph in the Old Testament where his his brothers come to him 
and he is now second in command in Egypt's saving Pharaoh's people from starvation. And his brothers come and they want him to save them. And Joseph had such a wonderful epiphany while he was in that pit into which his brothers threw him. And it was a self-discovery epiphany and he rose up from that. And he says to his brothers years later, what you meant for harm, God meant for good so that many would be saved. And I don't believe that that means God created the bad. I do believe in my own experience that God helps us to find wisdom in everything so that we can tell our stories, so that we can tell our sons and our daughters we live in the end, so we can rise up, and that we can also be mindful that there will be people who tell us, oh, you're so wonderful, oh, you're so amazing, while they then become destructive because of their unfinished business, because of their own stuff. And I think that's so important for us to accept their there are really destructive tendencies in this world. How do we recognize them sooner rather than later? And I think that's part of my own wisdom is I might be recognizing this now in two days and two weeks or two months instead of two years or two decades. Yeah, I'm on the slow roll sometimes with that too, Karen. You know, the discernment of is somebody or giving somebody too many chances. Oh, for sure. I'm still working through that, honestly, at 53. I'm working through that right now. I've been working through that the last few years about, you know, where you invest yourself. You're saying, I trust this place. And then when the people of that place, whatever it is, family, friends, spiritual community, when when there is a betrayal there, like it really brought me back to asking, do I trust me? Do I trust me to discern what's good for me? I think everything just brings us back to ourselves. And I don't mean in some weird narcissistic way. I mean in the sense of just owning responsibility for what is my part in this happening thematically or it taking too long for me to see where there's someone who is not really for me. Yeah, what part do I play in that? And so, because I can't change another person. And it's just, it's almost like, being in a relationship and then you get a, you have a divorce, right? You get a divorce. And I, I tell my clients who I coach in couples, I say, look, you got to do the work in the marriage or out of the marriage. Either way, you got to do the work that's generating this dynamic. So to stay or to not stay, that's your choice. But the work, the work's always going to find you, you know, no matter what relationship you're in. <laughs> It is. And what we don't look at, I think, is going down into the basement, working out with weights and getting stronger. So to do the work sooner rather than later saves us a whole lot of pain. And I agree with you, Stacey, too. And I'm I'm hoping that people who are listening to this can hear us say, when we have really painful, tough things going on in our lives, the question really is, Not how can I blame this other person who might be stuck in their own really destructive pattern. How can I learn my part in this? And how can I step away and heal more quickly from this? So I'm going to ask you one last question because I could talk to you all day. Honestly, Stacey, if you could have a conversation of, you know, tremendous meaning and importance for you, who would you want to have around the table to talk to? 
I'm going to go with the first thought that came to mind. And that's my dad. My dad passed when he was 49 years old and I was the most like him in our house. And I, you know, he was this big, strong Italian man, very handsome, very good at business and music and writing and loved history and loved people so much. And, and I, you know, remind people of him because of my love for writing and music and knowing where things came from in history and love people so much. I love people so much. And I, I think that I had such love and admiration for him for such a long time. And then my lens got colored through his other relationships and through some judgment about him. And I got to have a chance with him in the last three months of his life to be with him. But then I was like kind of desperately clawing at trying to garner memories and to know him fast. And I think that I would just love to sit with him and have him at the table and just observe him and enjoy him and see life through his eyes and ask him questions from a less clawing, desperate place and more of a really just a love, love to know you and to have you feel my love. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that as you were talking I have a sense that he does know all that because the veil between this world and the next, I think is really thin. And sometimes our healing with people does happen after they leave this earth. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't feel unresolved about it. I just thought if I could bring someone back to the table and really just see life through his eyes and share a bowl of pasta with him and you know, hear him swear in Italian again. Like I would love to do that again and just be in the learned place that I am now and the more gracious place that I am now. So I don't live with any regret about it really. I just, I I did a lot of resolve many years ago, but I would just, that would be joyful. So thanks for asking. I've got to ask you, what kind of sauce would you have on that pasta? Would it be like a bolognese or a Alfredo or a pesto or what would it be? Yeah, you know, we were not raised with Alfredo sauces because it's not really Italian. Yeah. <laughs> People think that it I've is, heard but that. It's yeah, I've like heard like Olive Garden Italian, but it's not really Italian. Um, so we always made gravy. The my mother made my mother was the best cook. All her family was, you know, and uh, we would have a red sauce, and then they the, the gravy is the red sauce, the marinara, and then they would cook the meat, the brajol, you know, and the, the the ribs, and we would suck the marrow from the bones. And I would love when she would then drop all the meat and the meatballs, her meatballs were amazing. She'd drop them all in the marinade, and then it would all just kind of play together. <laughs> and then they went and played in my mouth, and I was a happy woman. What would you have? You know, I'm trying to think. I love I love a good bolognese like you are describing. But I am a really it was interesting because I was reading Stanley Tucci's book and I forget the name of it, but it's all about eating in Italy. And he was saying the same thing about Alfredo sauces. But I am an Alfredo kind of a girl, so we've got to Me figure too. that out. You know? Just loving that cream stuff. Yeah, carbs and dairy. Sign me up. Creamy, fatty, salty, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I know our listeners are going to want to love to find you. So where can they find you and where do you want to lead them? Sure. They can find me at stacyrobbins.com. They can also find me on Instagram at lovestacyrobbins. Those are the best places. And if they're Facebook people, because they're more our generation and they haven't segued over to Instagram, they can find me on my author page, 
on Facebook, Stacy Robbins. Okay, this was such a gift. Thank you, Stacy. We'll hope to have you back soon. Love it. Your listening means so much, so please hit the subscribe button and join us for the next episode. To tune into the power of connection and transform your life at home and at work, please also get my book, The Connected Leader. It is available on Amazon and all online book retailers. And visit our page, connectedleaderbook.com. Stay connected.